The Drum Candy Podcast is brought to you by Drum Factory Direct. Welcome into episode 7 of the Drum Candy Podcast. This is your host, Mike Dawson. I'm coming to you from Drum Factory Direct in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. This week, I sit down with my good friend, huge influence of mine, Glenn Kochi of the band Wilco. We talk about everything from what he's been doing to keep himself inspired this past year, including his Beat of the Week project. If you're not following Glenn on Instagram, do that now, and you will see every, every week he puts up a new creative beat and also a transcription of it. So there's a lot to dig into there. We talk about what's going on with the band. We talk about, um, I pick his brain about composing music for solo drum set. If you're not familiar with Glenn's work outside of Wilco, he's a prolific composer for solo drum set, for percussion, for uh, string quartets, for percussion ensemble, for orchestra. Um, so dig all of his solo records are fantastic. So they're all available on Glenn's, uh, Glenn Coach's website. They're also available on the Wilco website store, I believe. And he has a great duo project called On Fillmore. If you haven't checked out any of that stuff, it's mostly bass, drums, percussion, and some other layering of samples and, and different instruments. Very cool stuff. I've kind of gone down a rabbit hole on, on Fillmore the past couple of weeks. So check that out. Don't sleep on that stuff. What else do we get into? Oh, gear, of course. We talk about Glenn's first snare drum and some of his other favorite drums in his collection. Um, so it's it's a fun one. So let's just get to it. Here we go. Glenn Kochi of Wilco. All right, Glenn, welcome to Drum Candy, my new podcast for Drum Factory Direct. Um, first question, how are you doing? And piggybacking, how are you keeping creative and inspired during this insane year that we've experienced? I checked in with you, I think, in March of last year. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe, I don't remember at this point. It's all a blur. Right? Yeah. Crazy. No, uh, thanks for asking. I've been, um, I've been okay. You know, luckily... Um, the COVID thing hasn't hit too close to home um, with my family or anything. So that's been good. And I'm glad I'm vaccinated and my wife is. Um, but musically, you know, uh, I kind of um, took the lead on, with the kids. Because right when COVID happened, uh, my wife got a, a promotion. So she's been very busy. So mm-hmm. I've been trying to use this time as a gift to spend with family and really like immerse myself in that and kind of try and take as much off her plate as possible. Um, so that was kind of my main focus, but musically, um, you know, I still can't help but drum and get lots of ideas all the time. So, um, I had, I started working on a bunch of solo pieces that were coming solo drum set pieces. Cause it's been a while since I've been writing those and started maybe ooh, close to a dozen of them. And a few of them are finished. A few of them are still works in progress and some are abandoned. So that's one thing that's been going on. And my uh, beat a week project that's been happening the whole time. So, you know, just forcing myself to come up with different ideas, asking lots of questions. What if I try this? What if I try this? And, and constantly writing, um, you know, beats down for every, for everyone that I post. There's probably, you know, anywhere from five to 20 that aren't posted. Um, that mm-hmm. week. Um, yeah. And then recording with Wilco still, um, I did 
Gosh, I did another record with Daniel O'Sullivan remotely. That was nice. And a project with the artist Glenn Kino uh, for a video he was making. But um, lately it's been mainly um, Wilco. So recording with Jeff here in Chicago. And John came in a little bit. Had a keyboard players coming in later this month. So just working on a record slowly but surely with them. And that's it. What is the plan for the band moving forward? First of all, is this the longest you've ever been off the road in your professional yes, career? Yes, it is. Because we, you know, when I moved to Finland, we took a year off, but that ended up being, um, well, it might have been around the same because I only asked for eight months off, but we ended up taking off the road at least probably like a year and a half. So it'll, it'll be about the same. Okay. Which is kind of unheard of for this band. So to have two periods like that is kind right. of remarkable, but... Um, yeah, we're we're hitting the road again in August. I think it was announced yesterday our tour with Sleater Kinney that was supposed to happen last year is happening in full in, in August. Um, at the end of July, I'll be going to Finland um, for the Hour Festival where I'm going to be doing some a collaboration with uh, an improv set with two great drummers, Tony Buck and Olavi, a uh, Finnish drummer, and um, I do will be doing some sets. I'll be playing with the string quartet. They'll be doing all my string quartets, four of them. Um, so that'll be fun. And then Wilco will continue. We have some dates in September. Um, I think we'll be on the road sporadically throughout the fall. Great. So are you going to... I'm asking all my, my band member friends this. Like, what do you think it's going to be like that first show back? Because you guys haven't rehearsed to really anything, right? Is no, we haven't like been in the same. Band. You know, we live in, in five different states, the six members. So, yeah, that'll be our first rehearsal is actually on the road in Spokane, Washington, at a theater. I think we're, we're renting and we'll rehearse there. Um, I'm sure it'll be emotional. It'll be fun. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think it'll just be good to, to have that feeling on stage again, sharing music, playing it live with other people, and being able to express that and communicate with the audience have that yeah, back and forth. Sure. That'll be really special. So let's talk about um, two things. The Instagram Beat a Week project, I definitely want to ask you about that, and then composing for drum sets. So anyone listening, go to, if you have, if you don't follow Glenn's Instagram page, he's been posting, I mean, it's been a Beat a Week for how many weeks now? It's been almost a year? 71. Oh, okay. I started writing a lot of beats. You know, it, it started... Um, you know, when I went to Finland, actually, that was mm. right after I'd finished um, three writing three concertos in it within a year. One for you know drum set and string orchestra, one for drum set and full orchestra, and one for drum set and um, mixed chamber orchestra. And there were these really long, intense pieces. And when I got to Finland, I was like, I want to write something really, really short now. And where I don't have to worry about like fingerings and bowing direction and <laughs> registers and all that sort of thing. And I was just wanted to get back to drum set. So I actually started writing all these beats and filling up my notebooks um, just with the idea of just to constantly document different beats. And, and when I say beats, not it's things that at least are out of the ordinary for me. You know, I'm not just going to put in a basic rock beat that I've been doing forever. Mm -hmm. Just something that is in some way, whether it's technique, sound, voicing, something um, new, new territory or fresh territory for me. So I started writing those in 2017, but I started posting them January of last year. Okay. And then do you, do you write them 
in your imagination first and write them out, notate them, or do you sit the kit and fumble around until you find something? All of the above. So, okay. you know, if I'm by drums, I mean, when I sit to the drums, a lot of times I'll just start playing around and be, oh, that's a cool pattern, or oh, I haven't done that. And it'll, I'll work it into a beat and then figure out, like, oh, what's the best foot pattern or whatever to go with it. A lot of times I'm not even near it. I just, you know, you, I'm sure you sing drum parts in your head all day long. So I do as well, and I'll just be like, oh, wait, that's a cool one. What time is that? And I don't even know, and I'll write it down. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a bit of both. Well, this is a podcast all about gear, so I have to then ask, because each one you're using, maybe not a totally different setup, but different mallets and different implements, different sound effects. How do you get to the palette? How do you arrive at what becomes, when you have hundreds of instruments in your room to mess around with, how yeah. do you decide on what to use? Well, sometimes it's just what's at hand. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? If I come up with a pattern, I'm like, oh, I better record this really quickly before I forget it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I'll just pick up what's there. But other times it's like, you know, if I have the luxury of working on something a little bit and developing it, you know, if I start, if I come up with an idea on, on Monday or Tuesday, and then when I hit it on, you know, Wednesday, if I make a little recording or whatever, and I'll be like, that's cool. But you know what? The hi-hat pattern, it's kind of hard to hear. So I'll throw some upcycled percussion on that. Mm-hmm. Or the toms are a little, um, I could use more tones, so I'll use one of my um, modified signature sticks, or I'll use a mallet, or, you know, uh, I, lo- I love these drum keys. I don't know if you've ever messed with mm-hmm. them. Yeah. Yes. So I prepare the drums with that. You know, just kind of things I've always done anyway to get different sounds in the studio or live. Um, so sometimes I'll just, like, give myself a little feedback. and like, this is, this is cool, but it could sound better, and I'll modify the drums that way. Is that the same process for Wilco parts where you're assessing, you know, what elements need to cut more or cut less or be brighter or darker? Is that the same process? Yeah, but I guess a lot of those decisions are made before I hear the playback. So yeah. that's more, I think, what is fitting with what I'm hearing as I record. You know, mm-hmm. whether it's the acoustic guitar or, you know, if I want a different sound than the hi-hat, I'll prepare the hi-hats in a way or, you know using multiple brushes in one hand and hitting a backbeat instead of a stick just because maybe it blends better with the bass tone or something like that. So mm-hmm. I think a lot of those decisions are made in the moment um, and less from um, assessing what I hear and then mm-hmm. making making alterations after that. Do you have like a go-to palette? Let's say Jeff picks up his old acoustic guitar. Do you have a palette that you start with or if he picks up a, I don't know, uh, a SG or something. Do you have sounds that you're like, I'm, I know where to go when whenever the song goes a certain way? No, because, um, I mean, I think, you know, it, it's more on what comes out of those instruments than the instruments themselves. Uh-huh. You know, there's so many guitars, so many amps. First of all, that would be impossible to keep track of <laughs> <laughs> yeah. all the gear there. But also it's like, you know, they can make them sound so many different ways. So it's, I think I react more to the chord progression or to the vocal mm. melody, um, things like that. The musical elements more than necessarily the gear. What is your um, your root Wilco kit? Like, what do you start with? Recording? Yeah, well, let's say recording, yep. Uh, God, you know what? It, it's all over the place because I have so many drums there. Mm-hmm. Um, and the studio has so many drums, the Wilco studio. So sometimes it's whatever set up in the room. And I'll just go in there and get an idea, you know, and lay it down. And it might be like, oh, I want a brighter snare or a fatter snare. Um, 
So I'll switch those out. But, you know, I'm, I'm a sonar guy and mm-hmm. we've used sonar live ex- exclusively for like 20 years basically now. But mm-hmm. in the studio, kind of anything goes. So there's, you know, I have a beautiful A&F snare drum. I have a great WTS um, uh, kit that's on loan right now, but I love that snare drum and some of those Tom sounds. I've got some vintage sonar drums, um, you know, a bunch of WFLs. So a lot of different drums that I'll go to if it's any, if I know it's already tuned a certain way or already has a certain head on it that I'm looking for instead of, you know, reworking one drum, I'll just switch out that drum instead. Same thing with mm-hmm. cymbals. I have a pile of rides, pile of crashes, pile of hi-hats. So it's kind of whatever, oh yeah, this one will work for this. So what's the dynamic in the band when you go for the kooky stuff? Is it like, give us more and more of that? Or, hey, Glenn, dial it back a bit. Give us some Levon on this one. <laughs> Does that ever happen? <laughs> uh, a little bit of both. You know, I mean, I, I've heard many times when I'm just like rummaging around, um, you know, trying to switch gear around in the, in the, in the booth. And I'll hear like, is that your part? Or <laughs> are you done now? Or like, yeah, like, you know, just little jabs like that. But no, I mean, like, you know, on the last, I think you interviewed me for our last uh, studio record, which was Ode to Joy. Yeah. And, or Adam did, but um, uh, yeah, for that one, it was kind of free reign. You know, I had, I used deconstructed kit on the whole thing. So I used, um, you know, large bass drums with marching machines on it mm-hmm. and, only antique sticks and brushes and, and antique um, sleigh bells and shakers and stuff. So just in layers and layers of percussion. So for that, it was like green light, like, oh, that sounds cool. Why don't you try that, you know, do it on this tune too, or try that, you know. So I think there's a lot of, um, since we have the luxury of our own studio, our own label of just like, sure, try it. And, um, you know, if we have to dial it back, we'll dial it back, you know. And Jeff and, you know, the guys are pretty quick. Like Jeff will say like, you know what? that sound is distracting to me or that's, that's a little hard to strum to, or I think that detracts from this or that. But, you know, most of the time, I think 20 years in the band now, I'm able to kind of figure out what's appropriate and what mm-hmm. might be pushing it too much, <laughs> you know, cause the decisions I'm making aren't just to get this sound on there or, you know, cause I have yeah. this new thing. It's more like, Oh, this, this would work here. I really think it'll work. Like, just trust me on this guys. And most of the time it, it works out. Now, wait a minute. You just told me the other day that you're going to force Rototoms on this new record. <laughs> I didn't force them. I, they, they, were, they were encouraged. Um, <laughs> yeah, I told you I, I turned 50 in December, and my wife surprised me with a full set of Rototoms, which I never had being a child of the 80s. You know what I mean? I can't yeah. believe I never at least had the 6810 setup, but yeah. I always loved them. Um, and so, uh, you know, I joke to the guys, like, guess what the new record's going to have on it? You know, it's just a joke text or something like that. But then they asked me to bring them in. And sure enough, like, they fit perfectly on the first tune we recorded, stylistically-wise. I used them as an overdub, and they fit perfectly. You'll hear it. It's, it's like, oh, yeah, that's great. Now, is it so, Pink Floyd or Van Halen-influenced? Which is it? Mm, I'm going to say neither of those think more like, I don't know, gang of four or, uh, or, okay. uh, or, um, joy division or something like that. Yeah. Nice. I don't know, think they used roto toms, but that kind of Tom sound, at least I detuned them and played them with steel pan mallets really loud. So it's like, it's just a different effect. Nice. Okay. Let's, um, 
gosh, I have two ways I want to go with this. I don't want to abandon the solo drum set thing because this is my own selfishness. I have to ask, um, how do you compose solo drum music? Like, what is step one? Like, if you were teaching a class for drummers who have never written a piece of music for solo drum set before, where do you begin? Yeah, I mean, usually it's almost just getting the idea, finding the inspiration. You know, okay. I, I don't force myself, like, sit down, like, I'm going to write something. It's more like I'll be listening to something and be like, oh, that's so cool. Like the way that bass part and drum part are. I wonder if I can play that, you know, if I can figure out a way to play something similar to that. And then I'll mm -hmm. figure that out on the drums. And then I'll be like, oh, wait, but my left hand, I can do it. So my left hand's free. I wonder if I, um, uh, you know, put a kalimba up here, if I can play a melody with my left hand or the crotales, you know, I've got all this melodic stuff mm -hmm. off here clock and crotales and kalimbas and stuff. So I'm, uh, oftentimes it just kind of develops organically like that. You know, like even some of my older pieces, like the monkey chant, just started mm -hmm. with asking questions like, oh, can I play that? ostinato what if, can i play those other tones oh can i what can my left hand do can i play these melodies can it portray these characters and so most of the time it's that or it starts in the idea of of hearing something that really inspires me and that i like and i want to do my version of it mm -hmm. and so maybe i'll even start trying to uh to rearrange something like electronic maybe an electronic piece some of the newer things i've been doing like we're just from listening to some minimal um kind of uh, electronic minimalist things from, from the 90s, um, from Cologne. And I'll mm -hmm. hear these pieces, and I'm like, oh, I wonder if I can do that. And so I'll even try to rip them off, but inevitably it sounds totally different. But when mm -hmm. I'm ripping them off, I'm like, oh, that's cool, but it, actually this rhythm works better if I move it here or this way. And then it develops into its own animal, even though the seed came from asking the question, can I do that on drums? And that's almost always where it comes from. So then when does it get from that idea to form and structure and a completed piece? Like where, you know, that's always the missing step for me. I can come up with some cool ideas. Now what do I do with it? Well, a lot of times when you come up with those cool ideas, you come up with a bunch of variations on those cool ideas, right? When you're figuring mm -hmm. it out, you come up with something else like, oh, wait, I can do it this way or I can do it that way. So instead of being like, I'm going to do it way B and that's it. I'm going to say, well, way A still had some merit. So what mm -hmm. if I use that later in the piece? Or when I get to, to idea B or whatever, can I build that up and maybe get to it by adding things additively? Or, you know, I noticed my hi-hat is static through this whole thing. Maybe I can make a little melody of open and closed hi-hats while I'm playing this ostinato. You know, so a lot of times it's just when I'm, Coming up with the patterns, I'll realize, like, oh, there's four or five good ideas here that I should see if I can string together in a cohesive way that makes sense in the development of the tune. You know, and sometimes it's more like, you know, story arc. Like, I, I assign a narrative to it, like, this mm -hmm. is going to happen, or I'm trying to get a, elicit an emotional response from myself. So I'll have it go in that direction. Um, yeah. But typically, the development and the architecture of the piece also happens organically, um, just seeing what materials I have at hand and how I can arrange them into something that is pleasing to myself. And do you always leave improvisation as part of the piece, or is there some that are strictly composed? 
Uh, no, some are fully composed and some have built in improvisation, you know, large sections mm -hmm. um, where it's in, improvised. Um, and some is structured improvisation. You know what I mean? Like, I know I'm going to go from here to here, right? But how I get mm -hmm. there is going to be open. But some pieces are, I'll play them the exact same every time, too, just because I know it works. Kind of the same in Wilco, you know, after playing. Some things I'll play different every every night, some songs. But some songs, after playing them hundreds and hundreds of times, you know, for years and years, I know that, oh, this fill works the best. Mm -hmm. Right? This, this when, when I do this um, accent pattern with my hi-hat, it feels the best. So I'll go to the tried and true sometimes just because I know it's going to be the best version of the song. Where other times I really like to shake it up and keep everyone on their toes. Okay, shifting back to the gear. <laughs> I yeah. don't want to lose focus here. I can go for hours on solo drum music. So everyone listening, go, if you're on Spotify or Apple Music or any streaming service, um, check out Glenn's solo records. They're all, I was just listening to the drum set quartets that So Percussion did. That's one of those that's taken me half a dozen listens to finally have it start to click, which was a, a worthwhile investment. Very yeah, cool that pieces. was, yeah, when I... Uh, it started as drum set quartets and kind of went out in a lot of ways. I don't think actually, I wonder, I don't think my first two records are up on streaming services yet. I'll have to do that. My first two solo records, but they're not where are they available anywhere? Uh, on my website. Okay. And just glencochi.com. Maybe even through the Wilco store, uh, the Kung Fu Wilco store. Great. And then your duo project on Fillmore. Yeah. Similar vein composition and improvisation correct yeah is it mostly improvisation at this point again it depends a lot of structured improv you know okay. what I mean? we know that you know let's say um i'm going to get to the melody in the first four minutes but whether it's one minute or four minutes to get there <laughs> and how many times we do something or what happens once we get to this section it's totally free form so that's my duo with darren gray um and I've had that band for 20 years, and our records are kind of all over the place, but those are all up on um, on streaming services. And actually, we, have, we put a, a page up on Bandcamp recently and are starting to release a lot of unreleased material and things that haven't been available until the last couple months. Awesome. Yeah, so everyone go to Bandcamp and look for Owen Fillmore, and that's Glenn's duo. Check out our solo records. I think it's cool to listen to your solo records and then throw in a Wilco record and see what what influences what and what what gets through and it's pretty it's pretty awesome experience so now let's shift to the gear um how do you select what do you look for when you're adding gear to your collection and then what do you look for in gear that you're going to then take on the road good questions so adding to my collection it's often not very well thought out or formulated. And I don't consider myself a collector, really, mm -hmm. but my wife would disagree with that. I mean, um, your background says otherwise here. <laughs> You've got your background of your room says otherwise. You've got instruments everywhere. Well, yeah, that was my midlife <laughs> crisis. I started collecting various wind chimes, but none of them are actually like mark tree wind chimes, though, glass chimes and bottle caps and bamboos and shells and that, you know, <laughs> stuff like that, just for interesting sounds. So, you know, we always joke because I'll, if I find something interesting when I'm, you know, on vacation or out with my wife or something and kids, 
I'd be like, you know, I can use this. And, and my wife's always like, yes, you use everything you buy because you find a place to put it. But, but I don't force it. I just like, if I know I have the sound there, it's like, oh, I'm going to use this. So yeah, several things I've written call for glass chimes or shell chimes mm. and things like that. Um, so a lot of times it's just what interests me. Um, you might have to edit this. I don't know if I'll make the, the camera clear, but do you see all those things? So that was just, uh, Oh yeah. All those things. So those are just all sorts of different oxen bells. When I was in Cambodia, I heard these and I was like, that's such a cool sound. And they make big ones and little ones. And I was like, I love those things. So I just got a bunch of them. Um, never anticipated getting them. And I use them as shakers. Now I've used them as shakers or sound effects. I just love the sound and it makes me happy to have them, whether it's a practical purchase or not. Mm -hmm. So that's the same thing with, you know, I don't have, a lot of, um, let's say, snare drums or vintage snares, but I have things that really interest me or I think can be um, useful in the studio. Mm-hmm. You know, like I have a Premier snare that has snares on the top and the bottom, an old one that they made, just because you don't really see that outside of, you know, scotch pipe and drumming. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, oh, I could get some cool effects from that. Or like on my SQ2 sonar kit, my most recent kit, I have a, a drum that doubles as a tom-tom. Um, it was kind of a rack tom that I had snares put on. Mm. Um, or the same thing I was using, I uh, use a lot of minor large hand drums. Sometimes when I'm performing with the dance company 8-9, kind of as these deep floor toms, I put them on stands and put mics underneath them. Um, but they were, you know, for traveling, I wanted something like that to use with Wilco, but a little more robust. So Sonar built me some, some shallow, have them. Forks Drum Closet, Nashville's full-line drum store. Celebrating its 40th year in business, Forks is independently owned and operated in the heart of Music City. Specializing in drums and percussion, Forks offers great discounts on all major brands and will beat any retailer's advertised price. From new and used equipment, vintage drums, and marching and orchestral instrument, Forks has something for every drummer. They also offer professional rental, repair, and restoration services, as well as drum lessons. Stop by their storefront at 308 Chestnut Street in Nashville, Tennessee, or call 615-383-8343, or go online at ForksDrumCloset.com. I don't know where they, oh, there's one way up there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yep. Yep. Okay. Yeah, so they're just kind of these shallow 16 and 18 inch, 3 inch deep toms. So things like that, that just, oh, like, this is a cool sound. I want more of it. Um, I love the sound of, of some antique percussion, like I said. Um, you know, uh, sleigh bells, jingle bells, some shakers, maracas, things like that. They sound interesting to me. Um, but I don't want to get too sidetracked. But a lot of times, honestly, I'll just go down. It's just what interests me. So I've gone down rabbit holes a little bit mm-hmm. with flat rides. And oh, pangs, really? <laughs> and it's like, I don't really, you know, I only use pangs when I record because I have a beautiful one from the seventies. That is my go-to suspended symbol. Um, but I don't really, I don't have one on my Wilco set. I don't have any on my regular setups. Same thing with flat rides. I've loved them since I was a kid and I probably have 15, 20 different flat rides. I just love 
how they sound. I don't use them in Wilco. I'll use them when I record sometimes, mm-hmm. but it's just something that I want and, and I have, and I just switch them out. Like every week, I'll have a different one on my kit just because mm-hmm. I enjoy playing them. They just have different personalities. So there's gear purchases like that. Like something about that particular type of instrument resonates with me. And mm-hmm. so I want more of them in variations. Um, yeah. And, and sometimes it's, uh, it's something that actually is a practical purchase. But um, as far as determining what to take on the road, yeah, that with Wilco, that is mostly determined by what songs from which records we will probably do on the road. Um, and honestly, if you talk to my tech, Ashwin DePonker, he would, you know, he takes a lot of things on the road that maybe we don't even use because we'll go, um, you know, we let fans vote in for requests oh, right? and we have just a lot of records and a lot of songs and we don't, you know, we don't have a set. It's different every single night. Mm-hmm. So there might be songs that pop up in a set that we haven't done in seven years or eight years. So I need those sounds there. So he, he has a lot of extra gear in case that song gets called. He can pull this thing out or that thing out. We have notes like, oh, yeah, that goes on the hi-hat here. Or, you know, I need these little, this little pad of shakers because I play it with my hands in this one song. So he kind of takes a lot of that stuff um, just in case. But mm. typically, if we're, you know, touring on a new release, we'll just take what is relevant to the new songs. And then I'll have the staples already in my road gear. All right. What was your first snare drum? My first snare drum, I don't remember. It was some no-name metal thing that I just had a, you know, I had a practice pad exclusively for about a year. And then I got a snare drum, which was great because I could, you know, practice for solo contests and everything. Yeah. And then I got my first drum set in sixth grade, which was a, a used, pretty beat up combination of um, Royce and U.S. Mercury. So depending on the piece, um, and the snare drum was a matching, it was blue sparkle wood. I want to say five and a half inch and it had a clear head on it that was just cranked. Um, and I love that drum. <laughs> I wish I would have kept it, but I had to trade in that set when I got my first real set, you know, in eighth grade, which was, you know, two years worth of, of gifts for every occasion, imaginable graduation, uh-huh. Christmas birthdays, you know, all that stuff, confirmation, whatever. Um, so that was a Thomas Superstar. Um, mm. I think it was, I'm forgetting the name of the finish, um, but it's this one. Oh, yeah. That's the classic one. Yeah. That's the one. So you still have everything. Dampening system that just, you know, flips off like that. Twist the dial. And, um, Is that an so eight? This, what's that? Is that an eight? It's an eight. You got I don't eight. know what, you know, I guess, I guess I've always been unusual because I remember that kit. It was a big kit because I, obviously I was really into Neil Paird because it's Thomas Superstars. And I had, I had right. a, um, a 10 and 12 inch concert toms and then 13 and 14 power toms, 18 inch bass drum or floor tom. And then my bass drums were 22 and 24. So I wanted... I wanted a combination of concert toms and double-headed toms, a smaller bass drum, 22 at that time was smaller, and <laughs> 24 just to use, because I thought like, you know, I would break it up into different combinations, which I did over the years, you know, I would use only certain drums 
for certain things. I can't remember my decision to go with the eight inch deep snare drum, but I'm glad I did. Cause it's, you know, up until it was my only eight inch until my SQ two mm. from, and I think actually that might be a seven inch that Tom Tom I talked about is an eight inch mm-hmm. deep um, with snares on it. And that's, that one right there. Yeah. I don't know if you can see it. Um, and the main one is a seven inch, but I actually let Ashwin pick out that size and he picked a deeper one just because he knows I like getting a response of a tight drum. You know, I yeah. don't like playing on a flabby drum, but with Wilco, it's a deep sound. Mm-hmm. It's the tunes a lot better. So this way I can have it, the tension up, but I still get a nice deep, thick sound. But this Tama one, Superstar, I use that all through you know, grade school, high school, college. It was um, my first, you know, the first four gigs I ever played with Wilco. It was there with me. Um, I've used it in the studio. I used it, um, you know, I did a a full hour-long record, a piece called Ilimak by the composer John Luther Adams. And that Thomas Superstar kit is the one on that just because it requires eight toms. I, I since got a couple toms that match it as well. Eight toms, double bass. So, so I actually still use this drum, which is pretty cool. Um, and yeah, I love that. So that's a birch. So um, it, this is no one can answer this question, and I just have to ask it anyway. In your mind, what is the perfect snare drum sound? Like, if someone says, "Give me an example of what you think is the perfect snare drum sound on record," what would be the first thing that pop in your mind? I don't know. I mean, I'm, I always kind of go to Bonham. Yeah. It's a great snare drum sound. You know, it's got ring and sustain, but it's got some sort of depth, even though I think it's probably cranked up too. I love that. Um, you know, I don't know, like you mentioned, Levon earlier, gets such mm-hmm. a beautiful, warm snare drum sound. I don't know. Honestly, it depends on the tune. But, um, yeah, I like something that's fat, but still mm-hmm. a little crisp. Um, but that I don't necessarily from when I'm recording, go for a specific sound. It's always depends on the tune, you know, like on the last record, I used this broken drum that, um, you know, it's totally detuned. Half the lugs are missing, but if you whack it really hard, it just gets a distinctive sound that worked with the music. Mm-hmm. So I use that on, on a couple tunes. So it kind of depends. So if you were, let's say, the band was flying in and you had to use all rental gear. What would you do to that snare drum to get it where it needs to be for Wilco for a night? I would give it to Ashwin. <laughs> what a rock star answer. <laughs> <laughs> he gets that sound in the first place. Honestly, yes. I'm, maybe I'm um, lazy. I'm really particular when it comes to when I'm in charge, right? When I'm like yeah. doing my own Hit, you know, my solo performance or something like that. I'm very particular about the sound and how I tune it and how everything feels. But with Wilco, I just kind of like, this is your job. You do it <laughs> wonderfully. Keep doing it. You know what I mean? And a lot of times we'll be like, I really want to bring this Tom up. And he's like, no, no, we've checked it out front. It sounds best this way out front. Just trust me. You'll get used to playing it that way. Um, you know, so when it comes to tuning tension, all that, I really do trust him blindly mm-hmm. um, that it's he's getting the best sound for out front because his background's in recording anyway. Um, mm-hmm. So, and, and you know, he he knows live sound, so he's he's thinking big picture 
where I'm just thinking about me, how I want it to sound from above. He's thinking about how's it going to sound for all those people out there. Mm -hmm. So I, I defer to him, but yeah, I guess I would order a, you know, a wood drum middle, you know, something, not a piccolo, not a five inch, something that I can get a little bit of depth on. And mm -hmm. I'd probably keep the bottom head slightly looser, detune the two lugs next to the snare so it doesn't buzz if I hit the toms. Mm. And then try and keep the top head a little tighter. And and I use the snare weights, which I love. Um, yeah. I used to use drum dots a lot, which I use on toms still. But the snare weights just seem to work really well. And I have the ones with the magnets so I can get more ring or less wing, ring depending on the tune. Um, and I also use the big fat snare drum stuff and Brute mm -hmm. EQ. So there's a lot of little things that we slide in for each sound song between songs to change the sound of the snare drum. Mm -hmm. So I can ha give it different personalities. I'll loosen the snares and tighten them depending on the song. So the, the, the core drum is, is probably tighter than what I would think, given how much treatment you do. So just the drum itself is more of a medium tight, medium tension. Well, I don't know. I have my Wilco snare right here. I brought home okay. before <laughs> off the road. So you're probably going to have to edit this out, but I'll hobble over there and, and give okay. it a whack and you can tell me, because I don't think I've tuned this at all. That's the 13 over there. And this is the 14. Okay. So let me get this. So here's the, I don't know why this is on me. That's actually kind of loose. Yeah, that sounds pretty loose. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's pretty throaty. Yeah. Maybe I did detune it down for a song or something. I, I feel like it was a little tighter than that, but again, you'd have to ask Ashwin. What is your head setup? Uh, this, I have just a G2 on the top mm -hmm. and a 300 snare, clear snare side. So I think that's what Ashwin does live. That's what we get a great response from. On my solo kit, I always use the HD Evans um, HD, uh, the dry heads, either mm -hmm. HD or regular. Um, but those are the ones that have the perforations around the, mm -hmm. the perimeter, the little venting holes. Um, I just love the way that those sound. And then also when I prepare the, the drum and put all the springs and stuff through it, when I use that, it's, it's nice to have a pre-built holes. Yeah. Sweet. All right, I have one more question for you. That's what I'm asking everyone. Is this whole first season of the show, I'm going to be trying to do something with this, which is probably exactly the same drum you started on. Just a junky pearl imprint steel drum. All original. I mean, the heads are obviously not original. It sounds okay. It, it works okay. Some of the, I've had to replace a few tension rods. But what would you do with this drum if I gave it to you and said, make it useful for you? It's just a standard, like, beginner, entry-level steel drum. The throw-off is <laughs> a little loose, you know. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I could always, you know, make it into a, a prepared snare drum because the, mm. the shell material isn't too crucial for that. What um, would you do to do that? What's that? What would you do to prepare it? Uh, let me put this back. Again, you're going to have to do a little edit here. Okay. <laughs> Pretend like I had all this ready to go. 
But remarkably, I have this stuff here instead of at the Wilco lot, so it's cool. Amazing. <laughs> I would, I would do this to it. So you can see I have big springs, little springs, wires, little kind of other noise makers. Oh my god! paper. So um, you can always do that to it. I don't know if you have a need for that sound, but. Um, that's always an option. But honestly, what I would probably do with something like that, I would throw a, an Evans hydraulic head on it, a super thick, you know, old yeah. 70s head on it. And I would probably loosen the snares on it uh, a little bit and kind of keep it on the lower side, tuning wise, mm -hmm. and just keep it as a nice, just kind of fat, like recording drum. Mm -hmm. I think you could probably get a good sound. The combination of the heavy, thick heads, detuned, and the metal shell, you mm -hmm. could probably get an interesting sound. Sweet. I'm going to try them both. I'm going to, I guess I'll do the hydraulic first. That'll be easier. Yeah. Then I've well, got to figure out where, where do you source your springs, dude? <laughs> uh, well, I have a, a, yeah, I have a stockpile now, but you can get them at hardware stores, basically. <laughs> Some parts, some of them are from like screen doors. A lot of them are just small screen or springs. Some, you know, I found some in Guatemala once that were like a component for an oven, heating coils that work great. Um, but yeah. And another option you could, I've always wanted to do this and haven't done it yet. Just take out a hole in the side if you do a lot of improvisation gigs mm. and just keep it big enough so you can fit your hand in and wedge things against the two heads to oh. pitch and throw, you know, jingles on the bottom head or, you know, so just so you can like prepare it, uh, in the moment and get rid of the preparation. So if you can stick your hand in the drum, I think you can mess with both heads and do different things. So that's crazy. All right. Yeah, the metal projects. drum, you know, that shouldn't compromise the integrity. I'm going to have to leave your, um, your version for last. Cause it sounds like I'm going to destroy this poor thing. <laughs> <laughs> hey, one, I want to talk about, well, first of all, um, can I mention a couple other things? hundred percent. Yeah. Okay. So, um, oh no. Well, okay. So this is maybe my favorite snare and this was the first sonar one I had. I, remember that one. I think it was a delight, but it was the, um, uh, the one where you could customize it. So this is a one-of-a-kind finish. And I remember that kit. The maple, thin maple shells with the reinforced hoop inside. But yeah. I still use this all the time. I love that drum. My other favorite snare is, well, instead of taking it off, I'll just show you, is this sonar five-and-a-half-inch red sparkle with gold hardware. Cool. And that was actually... It's engraved. That was a gift from Sonar uh, for my birthday. We were playing Madison Square Garden on my birthday nice. um, years ago. And my then Sonar rep, Milan, flew over to the show and, and presented me with that drum, which was really cool. But I use that. That's my kind of go-to solo drum. Okay. What's and one of? other drum that I haven't used in decades, recording or for any other reason, is a pretty memorable drum because it's this Yamaha brass piccolo oh yes yeah old school 80s so oh, i had man. 
at that point in high school, I had my big eight inch deep wood drum and yep. I wanted something to counteract that. So for high school graduation, I begged my parents to give me nothing else um, except this snare drum. And I got this snare drum um, because I thought it'd be a nice combination. And I love that snare drum. I used it all through college. I used it with my rock bands. Um, since then, I haven't found a lot of use for it because it's a loud drum. Yeah. You know, it sounds best cranked up. And um, I have a fond memory of it that when I was playing with my high school band, um, we were in, maybe we were in college by this point, and it was over the summer. You know, we were playing gigs over the summer. And we were playing at this place called At The Tracks in Chicago, which is no longer there. And I remember we started the set, and we're playing, and the sound man kept, like, getting away from the from his little station in the back and kind of standing to this side and standing to that side, and he looked really upset. And then by the third song, in between, you know what? I don't even think it was in between songs. It might have been in during a song. He comes over to the drums and slaps down on my snare drum a wad of paper towels covered with gaff tape. The whole thing was probably like eight inches, like it covered half my drum. And he just came over, didn't say a word to me, just slapped it on the snare head and then walked back. And I was like, oh, wow, okay. Yeah. <laughs> now, wait a minute. You know, I'm you guessing did that I was with, well, So you did that with Wilco for years, right? You would have a handkerchief or something. Taped yeah, yeah, before I got the, um, <laughs> before I got the, the snare weights. I would always have like my wedding hanky or a different hanky on there with a little bit, but it was small, you know, it was, and that was the only sound control I had, but this was just like, shut that drum up, man. You know, it was, it was, a, uh, it was pretty intense. And I think, you know, I was like deep into a Stuart, Stuart mm -hmm. Copeland at that time too, you know, so it was, I think it was kind of like trying to get a really high, like pingy sound or something like that. Um, so yeah, but it, it didn't, I didn't have the, um, wisdom yet to play for the room you know <laughs> swing for the fences right <laughs> yeah exactly i was i was playing as if i was in a stadium even though i was in a small bar you know with 50 people there so that was a good lesson for me actually <laughs> oh man that's a classic i think everyone went through a piccolo phase if you if you came up in the late 80s and 90s you yeah. had to have a piccolo splashes uh, and piccolos yes yeah, splashes when are they going to come back bring them back glenn uh, I'm surrounded by a bunch. Like, <laughs> what do you think my hi hats are right there? I'm actually oh, those really? are splashes. <laughs> I use them for stacking. So, uh, yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to join me for this podcast. Um, I will keep you posted on what I do with this drum. I, I, I might not drill hole in the side, but I will do, I am going to try to prepare it and see what I can do with it. <laughs> Maybe if it still sounds like junk, I'll, I'll, how we can do it. You know, one? that, that old premiere I have just put some snares on the top head too. Mm. Just tape them on. No. Put a, just get a throw off. Drill, yeah. Put a throw off and get the right line. <laughs> make it something right. extra crispy. I'm going to have to bring you back on for the, crazy kooky get all the drum parts that drum factory direct has to offer and stick them on your drum and let's <laughs> see what happens yeah you're working at the right place to do this <laughs> all right thanks so, glenn yeah Appreciate thanks it. for having me it's always a joy talking to you man hope you enjoyed that hang with glenn i'm sure we'll bring it back on in a future episode to dive into some other topics but for now let's um let's shift gears
and let's mess around with this this steel snare drum that we've been uh, toying with this whole season. This week, I've been in a deep R&D mode for muffling. Um, I can't tell you exactly what, but I've been working on different muffling ideas. So I figured I would share some of the of the different experiments that I've been doing. So what I do first is I'm going to play. This is the gig steel snare that I'm using this whole this whole season, the real cheap drum that we've gotten. I think we've gotten into a pretty good place where it sounds pretty good. So just to recap, we put an Evans UV-1 batter on it. We put a 300 series on the bottom. We updated the throw-off. We put some Chorney Strand snappy wires on the bottom, um, die-cast hoops, installed an internal muffler, and uh, replaced all the tension rods, put some plastic washers on the tension rods, which helps smooth out the, the tuning. Um, and I'm really digging the results. So we're going to start with no muffling whatsoever so we can get a baseline. The batter head was tuned to a C sharp, and then the bottom was a tritone above at a G. So here it is with nothing. All right, the first thing I'm gonna do is turn on the internal muffler that we had installed and see what that does to the sound. Um, I'm, I'm tightening it down pretty good, so it's pushing on the head pretty tight. I was kind of surprised how many overtones still kind of sneak through. So here is, I would say, subtle muffling with the internal muffler. All right, next up, I did the old trick. I just slapped my wallet on the head. Um, there's no money in it, but there's a bunch of cards, so it's it's full of full of plastic. So it's a billfold full of plastic. All right, next up, it is the Big Fat Snare Drum Donut XL, which is, you know, a wider ring than most muffling rings with the, you know, the plastic, the black plastic ring around it to kind of weigh it down, hold it in tight. So here is the Big Fat Snare Drum Donut XL. Next up, I had two one and a half inch muffling rings, which are the they're thinner, so they're the thickness of a, a, a like a Remo Diplomat. So it's a thin single ply. And what I did was I did two of them, so two one and a half inch muffling rings of the thinner thicknesses. So the total the total thickness is about 15 mil when you have two plies of rings. Check it out.
here's another old trick. This is a shop rag that is covering, it looks like maybe the upper quarter of the head and I have two binder clips holding it down to the hoop. So it kind of bounces off the drum a little bit when I play, but then it settles down and mutes it nicely. Check it out, here's the shop rag. And last but not least, good old moon gel. What I did was I did one through six damper pads just spaced out between the lugs around as far as they would go. Uh, the results were interesting. One moon gel seemed to be not enough. Two was pretty good. Three was seemed to be really nice for what I was looking for. Four, five, and six just didn't, did, didn't do anything discernibly different to the drum. So two moon gels was really nice. A little tiny bit of tone sneaking through. Three moon gels was a sweet spot for what I was looking for, which was a real dense, punchy sound with like no overtone, but not super dead. So we're just going to drop in three moon gels. Here it is. All right, that's it for this week. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you like the show, please go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast and drop a review and a rating to help us spread the word. Uh, we really want to get this show out there to everyone. There's a drum geek in all of us, so please spread the word if you don't mind. Also, email me. I need some more questions. I only had a couple this week, so I didn't, I didn't bother answering those yet. If I get another batch, I'll, I'll make a segment for that. So please email me, Mike at drumfactordirect.com. And until next week, have a good one and see you then.